Shabbat Shalom. We're going to begin a new series this week as we explore the Beatitudes. And so I'm going to start with the first one in the list of eight. And this is Blessed are the Poor in Spirit. So there's eight Beatitudes that are found in the book of Matthew. And these are essential to the keys or essential keys to the kingdom of heaven and its associated blessings. So when we talk about the kingdom of heaven, we're talking about the realm where God lives. It's his rule and reign over his people in his presence. In fact, we often refer to the kingdom with, with the descriptor heaven, the kingdom of heaven. It's the realm of heaven. It's the realm of God where he dwells. And he promises in the Beatitudes that we can inherit and participate in his rule and reign, in the realm in which he lives, and that that is something that's tangible, something we can experience even in the here and now. So this is essential to understanding not only the kingdom of heaven, but the associated blessings. So if you're hungry for meaning and purpose, for peace and joy, these are the corridors that lead to them. So let's take a deeper look at the first of the eight Beatitudes, the poor in spirit. I want to begin by reading this passage and just talking uh, or getting an overview of all eight together, and then we'll begin to unpack the first one. It's Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And after he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those that hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So the first one, verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This word that we have in our text, blessed, it's from a Greek word that conveys the thought of happiness, but not a, not a surface kind of happy feeling, but a true and abiding happiness that goes deep within the soul. In fact, it kind of uh, depicts the, 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 what it looks like to have the favor of God, if you will. Uh, we know about the favor of God. It's the very thing that brings blessing into our life. When we think of Esther as we come into Purim, right? Queen Esther, she had the favor of God. 
And because of the favor of God, many, many doors were open to her. There were many opportunities given to her. She found herself in places of, of just great abundance and influence. And through that was able to help her people in a significant way. The favor of God is a game changer for our lives. We need the favor of God. And this is what's contained in this word blessed. It's saying blessed are those who are poor in spirit. They have the favor of God on their lives. Because of that status, favor comes to them. And to them belongs the kingdom of heaven. So what does it mean to be poor in spirit? This is a, a, a passage that's dealing with spiritual phenomenon. And so really what it's talking about is um, having no spiritual equity. If we're talking about being poor in finances, that means your bank account is close to zero. You have no money. Maybe you have a lot of debt, right? And, and, and you're, you're going with, without many, many of the necessities of life. To be poor in spirit is the same thing, except spiritually. It means you have no spiritual equity. You have nothing to spend in terms of spirituality. You're destitute. You're forsaken. You're, you're homeless, so to speak, in terms of God's heaven or God's realm in which he lives. And the kingdom of heaven, of course, I've already talked about that. It's the place where God dwells. It's the realm of love and peace and joy, adventure, meaning and purpose. It's in contrast to this world, which is dark and cruel and full of haunts. This is the place where evil dwells. But in his realm, there is no evil. In his, his realm, there is a perfect peace and a joy that is transcendent that can govern our lives in the here and the now. It's the place we call heaven. It's the place where every tear is wiped away and every hurt is healed. It's not only coming, it's already broken into our reality 2,000 years ago in the person of Jesus Christ. And we can begin to experience heaven to come in the here and now as it comes in his fullness in his return. So let's unpack this verse, blessed are the poor in spirit. Let's look a little deeper at, at what it means to be poor in spirit. Isaiah 66, 1 through 2 says this, Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where then is a house you could build for me? And where is a place that I may rest? For my hand made all these things. Thus all these things came into being, declares the Lord. Verse 2, but to this one I will look, to him who is humble and contrite of spirits and who trembles at my word. God says, I'm going to look to, to this one. And in the Hebrew, what's conveyed in this term, look to, really conveys the idea of paying attention to, giving your heart to, draw, drawing close to. And who does he draw close to? Those that are humble, humble. The Hebrew word here literally means poor. This is the connection with what Jesus is saying. When Jesus is saying poor in spirit, he's a Jew. He's a Jewish rabbi. He's referencing really this concept that's embedded in the writings of uh, Isaiah. It's the humble, those that are poor spiritually, that God comes to draw close to, to be contrite 
This word contrite means to be lame or crippled, to be broken or crushed, to those that are poor in spirit, to those that are spiritually bankrupt, spiritually broken, spiritually crushed. To these, God draws close to. To be spiritually broken is to realize you're bankrupt in terms of spiritual and equity. It's an understanding of being alienated from God and from his dwelling place because of our sin. Again, those that are humble, that recognize their poverty spiritually, are typically the ones who also tremble at his word. They're aware of the fact that they have nothing to offer to God. They're aware of the fact that they're alienated from him, spiritually broken, and yet they love him. They hold his word as sacred. They tremble before him. And it's to those, that category of person, that God gives his attention to, that he regards, that he comes to meet them in that place of brokenness. And it's there that they find his favor, his grace, his love. God so loved the world, right? What did he do? God so loved the world that he gave us his only begotten son so that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus was sent by our Father in heaven to save us, the lost, the broken, the poor in spirit. Isaiah 42.3 says, A bruised reed he will not break, and a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. He will faithfully bring forth justice. This is a prophecy about, about the Messiah, that when he comes, he comes to save, not to condemn. And who's he looking for? The broken, the needy. You know, Jesus was spending time with tax collectors and, and sinners, and uh, they were saying, hey, what are you doing? Don't you know who they are? You know, they, they're, they're so messed up. And Jesus said, you know, a physician doesn't come to those who are healthy, but rather to those who are sick. And the Son of Man has come to save and to seek those who are lost. He says, I will not break a reed that's already bruised, and I will not put out a candle that's about ready to go out anyway. What's that in reference to? If you look at the Targums, these are the Jewish translations of the Jewish Bible, back around the first century. This is how they understand this passage. From the Targum, Jonathan, it says in Isaiah 42.3, the same passage. It says, The meek who are like a bruised reed, the meek, the poor in spirit, are those that are like bruised reeds. And Jesus is saying, I will not break them. In fact, I've come to mend them and to make them whole. I will not break a bruised reed and the poor who are as a glimmering wick with him. He will not quench. He will bring forth judgment unto truth. Jesus did not come to judge or condemn. He came to save those who were broken and contrite in spirit. He opposes the proud, 
He bypasses the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Let me give you this passage. It's slide 69, Proverbs 34, or 3 and verse 34. And this is from the Septuagint. It says, the Lord resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And the word grace here is where we get this concept of favor, right? God is saying, you know, I'm going to resist the proud. I'm not going to listen to their prayers. I'm not going to come to their aid. But to the one who's broken in spirit and is humble and recognizes their need, who trembles at my word, I will come to them and I will give them my favor. And I will raise them up and make them strong. I'll restore to them what the enemy has stolen. I want to give you a parable. This is a parable that Jesus gave concerning the proud. It's found in Luke chapter 18. I'll read verses 9 through 14. And he also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. You know, that's, that's one of the earmarks of a proud, arrogant person. They, they, they think they're righteous in and of themselves. They think there's something about themselves that makes them righteous. They have a very high view of who they are versus a true view of their spiritual poverty. For those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. And here's the parable. Two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Now, a Pharisee is that religious person in the first century that looks like he has all his ducks in a row. And the tax collector is a Jew who's working for the Roman Empire and is taking money from his Jewish brothers and sisters in the form of taxes. So, so the tax collector is like the ultimate sinner. He's the one who is a traitor. He's betrayed his countrymen, his people, his God, working for the state, working for Rome, collecting these taxes. So the tax collector, he's already on the outside. He's not in community. Communities don't even let him, you know, participate as a communal member. Somehow he's found his way into the temple. And he, along with this religious Pharisee, are praying. Verse 11, the Pharisee stood, was praying this to himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other people. Swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector standing some distance away was even unwilling to lift his eyes up to heaven, but was beating his breast saying, God be merciful to me, a sinner. Yeah, who here is poor in spirit? Who here recognizes their spiritual bankruptcy? The Pharisee, he sees himself as righteous. The tax collector, aware of his shortcomings, can't even lift his eyes up while he's praying. 
beats his chest, crying out to God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Verse 14, Jesus says, I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. The humble, the broken in spirit. Jesus says, I'll come. I'll give you my favor. I'll lift you up. I'll exalt you. But for those who think they're righteous in and of themselves, Jesus excuses them and demotes them. In the end, they lose everything. They have nothing. Now, the big uh, question, of course, is what about application? What is this text saying about me? We have to stop and say, Lord, what are you saying to me? I mean, what kind of person am I? Am I like the Pharisee? Do I think that I'm righteous, that I have no need of your son, Jesus? Am I like the one who, who says in and of his own heart, I have no need, I'm spiritually full? Or are you like the tax collector, aware of your spiritual poverty, aware of your shortcomings, aware of your need? How many illnesses do you need to be sick? Just one. How many sins do you need to commit to be a sinner? Just one. I'll give you an illustration. If you had a five-gallon bucket of French vanilla ice cream, and I took a rabbit pellet about the size of a pea, just a tiny little rabbit dropping, and put it in your ice cream and close the lid and let it sit there till the next time you're going to have some. Would you say, oh, everything's fine. It's just one little rabbit dropping. Carefully remove that and eat some ice cream. You throw the whole bucket out, right? People, it only takes one sin to permeate our lives. Only one sin to alienate us from God. That's why he sent his son. He sent his son so that we could be forgiven and made whole. We all are in need of the Savior. We all fall short of the glory of God. Each one of us has sinned against the Most High and against each other and even against ourselves. We pray this in our daily prayer that Jesus taught us. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Let me give you one more parable. And this deals with um, the broken and the poor in spirit as well. It's found in Luke chapter 7, verses 36 through 50. Now, one of the Pharisees who was requesting him to dine with him, and he entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table, and there was a woman in the city who was a sinner. Now, again, in the first century, when you talked in, in a general sense about a woman being a sinner, it's usually in reference to a prostitute. So, so we've got two social outcasts. The tax collector, who's like a traitor, and then we have the prostitute, who is also a high sinner, you know, held, held with great contempt. 
So there's this woman who was a sinner. And when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster vial of perfume. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and kept wiping them with the hair of her head and kissing his feet and anointing them with the perfume. Are you catching this? Jesus is invited to the house of a Pharisee. A, a Pharisee in the first century is like, like our elected officials in, in, in terms of celebrity, all right? They, they, were, they had high status. They were popular among the people. Uh, they usually were very wealthy. And so here's this Pharisee who's invited Jesus to his home. And, and this Pharisee has other guests there as well. And, and of course, they're intrigued with Jesus. So Jesus shows up at this Pharisee's home. Do you think the woman was invited? Do you think she's there because they had invited her too? No, she heard that Jesus was there. So she runs and gets some perfume. And she enters this house uninvited. She made her way in without permission. Why? Why? Because she's broken in spirit. She's aware of her alienation, her shortcomings, right? But she knows that in Jesus there is mercy and forgiveness. So she breaks all the norms and the rules. She makes her way in, bows, begins to weep, anoints his feet, and everyone is now standing watching what is transpiring. Verse 39. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is who is touching him, that she is a sinner. In the first century, if a person such as this touched a holy man, that holy man became defiled. So Pharisees were very careful not to allow the general public to touch them. They kept people at a distance. In fact, when you deal with ritual purity and impurity issues, um, you know, it's important for spiritual leaders not to come in contact with those that are ritually unclean. I remember um, I was at an event and an Orthodox rabbi was there, and um, I don't know if he was a speaker or not, but anyway, at, at this venue, he was there, and a woman had come up, and she went to greet the rabbi. She was all excited, and she reached out to shake his hand, and the rabbi kind of pulled back a little bit, and the two guys that were with them jumped in front of the rabbi. They threw their hands in front of the rabbi, in front of the lady, and they said, don't touch the rabbi, you know? And she's like all startled, you know, and she didn't know that what that was about. And, and of course... Uh, dealing with ritual impurity, they were safeguarding their rabbi from any potential contact with someone that may be ritually impure. Well, that's real similar to what we're talking about in this passage. If this woman is the sinner that is stated in this passage to come in contact with a Pharisee, that would be a, a pretty big deal. They would not allow that. And so this Pharisee saying in his heart, if he was a prophet, if he only knew who she was, 
he would never allow her to touch him. What he didn't know is that this was the Son of God who came to seek and save the lost. He's the only one that reversed all that. He's the one that if you touch him, instead of transmitting defilement, you ended up getting healed. You ended up being touched by righteousness. It changed you. Keep in mind, he said this to himself in his own mind. And in verse 40, Jesus answered him. Knowing, knowing his thoughts, Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he replied, say it, teacher. And Jesus says, a moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii. I want to put that in today's terms. One owed $100,000 and the other owed $10,000. When they were unable to repay, he graciously forgave them both. So which of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, well, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. Simon knows what's happening here. Simon already knows that somehow Jesus knew what he was thinking. And what was part of the jab here in his own mind, right? He was saying, if Jesus were a prophet, like he says he is, or like his followers imply, then he would know who this woman is. And so he's discounting that maybe Jesus is a prophet until Jesus answers and says, Simon, I have something to say to you. And when he begins to speak, Simon realizes he must be a prophet because that's exactly what I'm thinking in my heart. And now he's addressing it. He says, well, I suppose the one he forgave more. And he said to him, you have judged correctly. Turning towards the woman, he said to Simon. He turns towards the woman, but he continues to speak to Simon. He looks at the woman who is broken in her sin. He draws close to her, just like Isaiah 42 says. He gives her favor. He says, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, which was customary. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. But she, since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with perfume. Verse 47. For this reason, I say to you, Peter, or Simon, I say to you, Simon, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. Simon, he could not escape the fact that Jesus just read his mail. Simon, you have no real regard for me. I mean, a little bit. You invited me here. I mean, you didn't wash my feet. You didn't anoint my head. You didn't greet me with a kiss. Why? Because you love little, Simon. But this woman, she loves great because she understands how impoverished she is and that I am offering forgiveness. Therefore, she loves great. 
Simon, if you knew how destitute you are in your sin and shame, you would have done what she did. But your debt is just 10000 But in actuality, it's the same as hers. You just don't realize it. Then he said to her, verse 48, Your sins have been forgiven. Those who were reclining at the table with him began to say to themselves, Who is this man who even forgives sin? Do you know no one can forgive sin except God? Within Judaism, by the first century, that was the idea. Theologically, only God could forgive sin. No one else could do that. No one could proclaim you're forgiven except God alone. So for Jesus to say, your sins are forgiven, implies that he's aware of the fact that he himself is God. At least he believes he's God. Who is this man that he even forgives sin? Yeah, he is sent from God. He is the Son of God. He is Emmanuel, God with us, coming to forgive our sins. And he said to the woman, Verse 50, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. He didn't say your love, you loved greatly. Remember, she loved greatly. He didn't say your love saved you. He said your faith saved you. What that means is this. That day she came to him believing that if she could have an encounter with him, that he would forgive her sins. And because she believed that, she acted on that faith and she came and she embraced him. And he did exactly what she knew he would do, forgive her of her sins. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. In conclusion, we'll make some application. The question is this. Are you poor in spirit? Do you recognize your spiritual poverty? And, and I want to I say too, for the believer, for those that believe in Jesus, we still are spiritually impoverished. We need him daily. Yeah, we, we, we need him because in him we have our righteousness. In him we have our forgiveness. In him we have our joy. In him we are cleansed, empowered, freed to serve him all the days of our life. For those that don't know the Lord, you know, are you poor or do you view yourself as, no, I'm good and I'm good. God's going to accept me because you know what? My sins are just pretty minor. How do we rectify being poor in spirit? How do we become rich in spirit? Paul says this, the word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we are preaching, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Will be saved. 
If you're here today and you don't know the Lord and you want to know him, if you're here today and you're spiritually impoverished and you want to turn that around, if you're here today and you're aware of your own shortcomings and you're saying, I want to be right with God, it's easy. You just confess that Jesus is Lord, that he's the Savior of the world, and you invite him in your heart. It's as easy as that, just like the woman who encountered him that day in the house of the Pharisee. And when you confess Jesus as your Lord and Savior and invite him into your heart, he will come in, forgive you, cleanse you, and give you spiritual enrichment, make you whole, make you righteous, right with God. Matthew 10, 32 through 33, Jesus says, Therefore, everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. Mark adds some context to this passage. I want to read that. In Mark chapter 8, it says, And he summoned the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in glory, the glory of his Father with the holy angels. So I want to give an invitation uh, if there's anyone here that's saying, I want to rectify my spiritual poverty and I want to put my faith and trust in Jesus as my Lord and Savior. I know most of you have already done that. But if there are uh, is anyone here that has not done that, that would like to do that at this time, just raise your hand. I will pray with you and we'll take that, that, we'll take care of that right now with a simple prayer. And you can go home today knowing that you are forgiven, that you are born again, that you have a place in the age to come, as well as an encounter with a, with a God that will transform you in the here and now. Raise your hand if that's you. Just want to give that invitation. That's what I do as a job, to receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Anyone? Okay, we're going to close, and I want to pray for you uh, as we close today. Uh, Father, we, we love you. We bless you. We thank you for your son. We thank you for Jesus. And Lord, we just say to you, we embrace him as Lord and Savior. We love you. We thank you for this gift that you've given to us. And we pray that you'll move in our hearts by your Spirit, that you'll bring healing to all the hurts, forgiveness and cleansing for our sins, restoration in our families, and joy, that joy that's unspeakable and full of glory. We love you. Jesus, you are everything. You are the beautiful one. You are the Savior of the world. We exalt you today. We give you praise. We say continue to move in our hearts and our lives and restore to us all that the enemy has stolen. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Shabbat shalom. Love you.